Well, welcome to church in March. And already in the third month of the year, starting a brand new series this morning called Addicted. And it may not be exactly what you might think, okay? Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, yeah, where we find... Uh, let's just start it again. Yeah, welcome to church in March. Uh, we have this series in addict, uh, called Addicted, and we're going to 1 Corinthians 16, and there's a New Testament family I want you to meet named the Stephanus family. And the Stephanus family, as Scripture tells us, was addicted to ministry. They could not get enough of serving God together, and their entire lives were spent on helping others. Now, as you head uh, for the text in 1 Corinthians 16, let me remind you again about our special prayer and praise service tonight at 530. Uh, if we've ever needed to pray together, it is now. And tonight we're going to gather in Jesus' name to pray and to praise Him for His goodness to us. The format's going to be very simple uh, as we live out our faith together. Heard some wonderful things from the ladies about the if gathering that took place over the last couple of days. And let's all move into Monday with that same spirit of revival. Uh, many, if you're able to get together for some fellowship this coming Saturday morning, uh, let's meet for breakfast at 8.15 down at the Sunrise Restaurant in Caldwell in the back room. And yeah, we'll just have a time of fellowship together. Uh, also, I hope that uh, you'll be thinking of who you could invite for Easter Sunday this year. And if you haven't looked at the calendar, it's coming quickly. It's April 9th this year. And I hope you can invite somebody. Okay, let's read in our text passage, 1 Corinthians 16, starting at verse number 14. Let all your things be done with charity. I beseech you, brethren... You know the house of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you submit yourselves unto such, and to everyone that helps, us with, helps with us and labors. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours." Therefore, acknowledge ye them that are such. Now, each week we're going to take a piece of this story and see more about this family that was addicted to ministry. This morning we want to start in verse number 14 with this simple verse on charity or love. Let all things be done with charity. And we know that the love of Christ present in servants of God is the catalyst to all authentic Christian ministry. Yeah, the love of Christ is what moves us to serve. Why was the Stephanus family addicted to ministry? Uh, the answer is very simple. Uh, they loved God, which led directly to them loving people. And yeah, their actions show that they didn't just say that they loved God. Anyone can say they loved Jesus. Anyone can call Jesus Lord, but Jesus said only those who follow him are true disciples. 
Real love leads to real worship. And real worship leads to real repentance, real submission, real ministry, real discipleship. Uh, in American Christianity, it seems that, that we have a major disconnect between the emotion of worship and the products of worship. If worshiping God doesn't produce a Christian lifestyle, then the worship is counterfeit. It's kind of like Pastor Andrew was talking about uh, the golden idol that Nebuchadnezzar made. And the status quo said that everybody should just come and bow down. But the three Hebrew children said, we're not bowing down. Uh, this is not our God. Our God is the one true God, Jehovah. And I'm sure that all the other people who were with him said, just bow down, just bow down. Just do what's expected by the culture. And it may appear that worship services are wonderful one hour a week, but if they never move anyone closer to Christ, then the worship is counterfeit. Uh, we come back the next week and experience the same emotions, but they don't convict us about following the commands of Christ. And we're going to see this morning that authentic worship moves us toward holiness, toward consecration, toward accountability, toward contagious Christianity. And we're going to trace the path of real love for God through several New Testament passages as we go along, uh, because real love for God is backed up by the lifestyle of a disciple. Now, the notes are provided in your bulletin this morning. They're also on the YouVersion app if you'd like to go there. First of all, let's talk about the platinum rule. The platinum rule. And I want you to go back to John chapter 13, where we find Jesus unveiling to his disciples a new commandment, a radical new way of living. Yeah, this is such a powerful foundational passage for Christianity. Look at John 13, and I know this is, these are the verses on the kids' bulletin today. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye have love one to another." And here we see the base model for human relationships being far surpassed. And when we talk about the base model for human relationships, uh, it is what we might call the iron rule. Uh, the iron rule is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You hit me, I hit you back. Okay, you insult me, I insult you back. Uh, how many of you had a brother or sister growing up? Okay, so you have all experienced the iron rule. And you have all dished out the iron rule as well. Right? Mom comes in the room. Why'd you hit him? He hit me first. Okay? And uh, so it is righteous for me to hit him because he hit me first. And, and so we proclaim our righteousness based on this iron rule. Now, this is the social norm, unfortunately. This is what's expected in human relationships. Treat other people like they treat you. Okay, but this ethic is not the model for ministry. The uh, heart of ministry 
doesn't seek revenge or retribution for offenses. Uh, a heart of ministry rises above the social norms uh, of I have the right to treat you the way you treated me. She hit me first. He threw it at me first. Now, now Jesus had already introduced a new idea as he had been talking to people and talking to his disciples. And sometimes we call it the golden rule. And maybe you learned this one in Sunday school. Do you remember what it was? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Certainly, that is an incredible ethic. Uh, it carries over into every walk of life and every relationship. Treat other people like you want to be treated. And there is generally a buy-in on the golden rule, uh, whether you're talking about business uh, or you're talking about school classrooms uh, or you're talking about society in general, this has always been a great uh, tool and a great buy-in. And some people reference this without ever saying where it came from, right? They, they don't even know, most people don't even know that it came from Jesus Christ, right? A lot of them think it came from Zig Ziglar or somebody else, right? The golden rule came from Jesus and it is the model for human relationships. And there's a lot of people who practice it until someone treats you with extreme unkindness, until someone wounds you deeply, until someone crosses that elusive line in the sand, right? Have you ever, you ever seen that? It's like, uh, now you've done it. You crossed the line. Like, well, I didn't even see a line. You crossed the line. And when we get into this territory, we need something better than the iron rule and bigger than the golden rule. We need the platinum rule, the highest ethic possibly known to man, which is treat others as Jesus has treated you, right? So this is huge. Uh, the platinum rule, it, it just blows everything else away. Treat others as Jesus treated you. Your sins nailed him to a cross, and yet he loves you. My sins forcefully took his life, and yet he loves me. And the love we're talking about this morning rises above the iron rule and then goes even further than the golden rule. Love one another as I have loved you. Each one of Jesus' disciples knew that they had been loved in an extraordinary way. He had been loved by the very definition of love. After all, God is love. And this is the only love that leads to authentic Christian ministry. You know, it's impossible to love another person selflessly, long-term, without the love of Jesus. This is the very love that addicted the Stephanus family to ministry, I want to talk about the second part, the greatest motivation, the greatest motivation. And go with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What is it that drives authentic ministry? Okay, what, what will keep you going as a servant of God long term? What will keep you in the battle Long term. Lots of people start out in Christian ministry, but then they fizz out or they fade out or they burn out. 
What keeps us going? 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all done. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Uh, so the greatest motivation. Now, we, we know that people are pushed toward certain behaviors or accomplishments by a variety of forces. Uh, some people are driven by fear. Uh, when I was growing up, there were certain things that I did because I was afraid of what my dad would do if I didn't do them, okay? How many of you had a parent who you were slightly afraid of, okay? How many of you had a parent who you were like you were really afraid of, okay? Uh, and it, could, it could even be in a bad way, like uh, you were afraid of, of not doing what was expected. Uh, there were certain activities that when I was a kid that I stayed away from because I was scared of the consequences, right? And people used to have those kinds of fears in society. Uh, it appears that sometimes that the new generation has lost that fear, uh, the fear factor of authority. And some of it is because authority is afraid to, uh, to be dogmatic and plain and draw that line in the sand and show black and white and right and wrong. But there are certain activities uh, that you didn't do because you're afraid to do them. And I, I'm sure you're the same way. Uh, there are still restraints in life that are based mostly on fear, right? Why do you not go 90 miles an hour between Nampa and Boise? Well, you're either afraid that your car is going to wreck in the ditch, or you're afraid that the highway patrolman is going to be sitting there, Right? And, and so hopefully as you mature, though, the motivation of fear transitions to the motivation of duty, okay? And, and duty uh, just says, why do I do this? Well, because it's the right thing to do. Why don't I do this? Because it's the wrong thing to do, right? Uh, Bob Jones Sr. used to say, do right, even if the stars fall out of the sky, do right, why do you do right? Because it's the right thing to do, right? And, and duty is a good motive. Uh, for instance, it will make you a worthwhile citizen in your community. But duty is not the best motive. Uh, Jesus calls his children to rise above duty. And, and sometimes we do things uh, because we're motivated by reward. Uh, if you kids will do your chores all week this week, uh, we'll go get some ice cream on Saturday, right? Uh, now it's if you're in Walmart and you're shopping. And, you know, I used to, when I was younger, uh, I used to kind of make fun of people a little bit who couldn't control their kids at Walmart. And then I had six kids. <laughs> and uh, now I get it, totally. And now I'm the one who's saying, hey, Holland, if you'll be good for two more aisles, we'll get an ice cream, Okay, uh, well, what is that? It's the motivation of reward. It's the opposite motivation of fear. And you know, most parents use either fear or reward as their motivators, right? Uh, by the time your kid's a teenager, maybe duty will work, but it's usually fear or reward. Uh, with fear, 
I don't do it because I'm afraid of the consequence. With reward, I do it or I don't do it because I desire the consequence. Yeah, once again, it's a nice motivation, but it's still not the best. The greatest motivation is love. Not just any love, but the love of Jesus. Uh, the love that 2 Corinthians 5 says constrains us. It compels us. It calls us. It pushes us toward God's purposes. And we talked about this at the beginning. If your love for God isn't moving you toward following the words of Jesus, then it isn't really the love of God. It's a counterfeit form of love. Uh, it might have a lot of the same emotional signals and social cues and yet be fraudulent. Uh, love that doesn't compel you to follow Jesus is actually self-love. It is a grotesque substitute for real love. Now, most things in this age that are called worship, unfortunately, are actually counterfeit. You say, Pastor, how could you be so judgmental? If people say they're worshiping God, you have to listen to them. Well, actually, God wrote this entire book that tells us how we're supposed to worship him. God has already defined what worship is. Worship is not about pleasing us. It's about pleasing him. Worship doesn't overlook sin. It readily repents of sin. Uh, worship doesn't set aside the commands of Christ to honor emotion. It fully submits to the commands of Christ. Worship is not a casual acknowledgement of God based on convenience. It is a sober reminder that I owe him everything at all times. Worship doesn't lead me to seek God less, always more. Worship isn't thinking that resources belong to me and that I can use them or waste them however I want. Worship is recognizing that everything belongs to God. Worship isn't viewing freedom in Christ as an opportunity to please the flesh. Worship views Christian liberty as the freedom to willingly serve Jesus without the bondage of the flesh. There is always a stark contrast in Scripture between worship and counterfeit worship, right? Whether we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar's idol or we're talking about Jeroboam's golden calves, uh, biblical love, scriptural love, New Testament love does not lead to counterfeit worship. But you know, self-love always does, uh, Self-love is why golden calves were constructed in the Old Testament and then defined as God. Remember, he said, these are your gods, Israel. Here are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And it is why figurative golden calves are still being constructed and defined as God. Where people are standing up on stages and saying, this is what God is. And yet, it's not what this book says God is. And if it's not what the book says God is, let me give you some plain Southern English. It ain't God, right? It may have the same three letters, but it's not the same God. And you may be at church this morning, and yet uh, society has led you to a skewed definition of God and love and worship. 
The God of the Bible does not honor a divided heart where we speak his name and live however we like at the same time. The God of the Bible calls that idolatry and repeatedly tells us that lifestyle is actually hatred toward God. Now, this next passage that we're going to see is one of the most powerful reminders in all of Scripture on why real love matters. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I wish we had time to study the whole chapter this morning, but I want to read uh, just the beginning three verses. Let's talk about the emptiness of loveless ministry. 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Let's talk about the emptiness of loveless ministry. Loveless ministry isn't just ineffective, it is utterly useless. Now, the same can be said for loveless worship or loveless discipleship. Uh, we've stated in a few different ways today that loveless worship is a counterfeit form of Christianity, and yet it's prevalent in churches just like ours. Uh, loveless worship doesn't produce any spiritual fruit. Loveless ministry doesn't bring fulfillment to anyone's life. It doesn't matter what God-provided gifts and abilities are present in the minister's life. Service without love has no lasting impact on the one serving or the one being served. And it's interesting, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of talk about what's being called the Asbury Revival at Asbury University in Kentucky. Uh, there's also been a great deal of conversation about the new film, Jesus Revolution, uh, which is a look at the Jesus movement of the early 1970s. And uh, I, I am all for genuine revival wherever and whenever it takes place. We all should be. Uh, a surfer can't make waves, but he can catch waves. And, uh, and we don't have the power to start a spiritual wave but we can catch a wave that's been started by God. And I know some people who were at Asbury or who have visited Asbury, and they say it's an authentic movement of God. I truly hope it is. But I do know this, studying the Scripture. When there is a genuine movement of God, it always leads to repentance, to submission, to discipleship, and to spiritual fruit. Uh, God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's love combine to change lives in a way that they'll never be the same. People truly hunger and thirst after the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and the change is evident. On the other hand, uh, counterfeit revivals don't last. They aren't life-changing. They don't lead to repentance or spiritual fruit. They want nothing to do with the pure teaching of God's Word. They look appealing on the surface, but there's no depth. Uh, as Timothy says, they have a form of godliness, 
but deny the power thereof. And at the end, they come up empty. And this is what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. And there might be an abundance of gifts and a lot of hype, uh, but there's no love. And authentic revivals move the heart and the lifestyle toward God. Words are accompanied by deeds. This church, the church at Corinth, was the most gifted church in all the New Testament. But spiritual gifts that aren't accompanied by love don't reach the lost. They don't build up the body of Christ. And that's what we're called to do. Uh, One of our deacons, Brother Fallon, gave me a stack of French tracks that he had gotten uh, to take with me when I went to the Congo. And so I was in Brazzaville one day, and uh, I saw him in my suitcase. This is before I lost my suitcase for eight days. Um, and I saw him in my suitcase, so I got him out. And I said, you know, I'll give some of these out today. And so uh, people just walking down the road in Brazzaville, they'll take one, and they're, like, happy. They're like, merci. They think you're giving them something awesome. And you are. Um, you're giving them the best thing ever. So I gave one to the guard at my hotel, And when I came back uh, in for lunch, he handed me a piece of paper. And he didn't speak any French, but he could, or he didn't speak any English, but he could write English. And so he wrote on this piece of paper, are you a minister of God in English? And so I was like, how do I answer that one? Because I've got some French, but like, I'm going to try to answer him uh, so I say, je suis un pasteur, and he says, uh, he writes back, he's writing me notes, and uh, so we had this kind of conversation for a couple days. Uh, one night, I was just about to sleep, because I go to sleep like at 8 o'clock in Congo, and I was just about to sleep, and somebody knocked on my door, and it was the guard with this big smile. He had read the track, and now he wrote on his, uh, his thing, he said, what should I do about baptism? And, uh, and so then I wrote him back what he should do, because there's a church like right next door to the hotel. So go meet with the pastor and you get baptized. And then the next night he came back, what is a tithe, he said. Um, so this is a little tougher to explain. Get to the church, okay? Um, but uh, I walked into the meeting place around the corner where all our pastors were meeting, and they saw that I had some tracks in my pocket, and they were, a couple of guys wanted to know, well, what, what is this? What's this literature you have? And so I showed it to him. And by the time that he had looked at it, and a couple other pastors had looked at it, I had no tracks left. Because every one of the pastors wanted some of them so they could give them to people. Because they care so much about the souls in their community. I've been to some of their national prayer meetings And the fervency, the spirit of revival that they have uh, is what we talked about last here in 1 Peter 4, the call to fervent charity. 1 Peter chapter 4. And I want to read just one verse here in 1 Peter 4 at verse number 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of of sins. So there's charity, and then there's fervent charity, or wholehearted love. And a fervent charity is an indicator that a person's entire being has been given over to Jesus, that he or she is fully surrendered to Christ. 
Fervent charity shows forth uh, the love of Jesus in relationships. It is Jesus' love being lived down in an unexplainable way. And, and this intense love is able to overlook the imperfections of others through the love of Christ and for the cause of Christ. And this is what it means when it says it covers a multitude of sins. Uh, Proverbs says that hatred stirs up strife. Hatred sees a negative, a flaw, an imperfection, and broadcasts it to the world, right? Hatred uses another person's weakness as leverage to try to advance self. But love overlooks. Love bears burdens. Love forgives. Love encourages. Love does not use another person's weakness as a weapon. Love uses sin as tragic starting in self. And, and I find that 1 Peter 4.8 and fervent love agrees with the traits of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Just think of the definition of love. It says love or charity suffers long. It's kind. It envies not. Uh, it vaunts not itself. It means it doesn't boast. Uh, it's not puffed up or proud. It doesn't behave unseemly or dishonorably. It doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. It doesn't dwell on negatives. It rejoices in not in iniquity, uh, but rejoices in truth. And it means that there is grief for sin, both in the self and others. It, it bears all things. Uh, the meaning is like a watertight vessel. It, it hopes all things. It wants to believe the best. It endures all things. And we know that God's love never fails. The testimony of fervent charity in the life of a believer points the world to Christ. We read this earlier in John 13. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. And we've seen this morning that the love of Jesus isn't just an emotion. It is an active pursuit of God that is displayed by godly treatment of others. Now, in our faith challenge, uh, I hope you'll do a little self-evaluation with me as we finish out. A, a heart addicted to ministry is first a heart that's completely in love with Jesus. And let's look for some answers in our own lives for just a second before we close. And I just want to ask some questions. and Let's uh, just go inward with these. Uh, is my love for Jesus moving me toward repentance or away from repentance? Okay? Is my love for Jesus causing me to hunger after God's Word or ignore God's Word? Does my love for Jesus crave comfort or does it call for conviction? Is my love for Jesus calling me to tell others about what Christ has done, or is it leading me to deny my faith when I'm around other people? Is my love for Jesus motivating me to be a giver, or is it hardening me to be a stingy, greedy person? Is my love for Jesus surrendering to the Spirit on a daily basis, or is it grieving the Spirit? You know, it is evident that authentic love, authentic worship 
Lead us to become more like Jesus. But counterfeit love and counterfeit worship allow us to speak Jesus' name without ever being changed. Counterfeit love and counterfeit worship are like making golden calves and calling them God. All the definitions are changed. It's not the same God. It's not the God of the Bible. And I truly believe that there are some people who used to have a real love for Jesus, but the world and the flesh and the culture have duped them into following, uh, to following for counterfeit love. What's called Christianity, but it's absolutely empty. It's not moving anyone closer to Christ. And so the question is this this morning, is your heart completely in love with Jesus? It's a sobering question. As we bow together, let's absorb the Word of God this morning. Father, would you move in our hearts right now? And I pray that you'd give us a moment to be honest with ourselves and to ask the question, is my heart truly in love with Jesus? Is the love of Christ moving me forward and motivating me to serve? Am I doing what you've called me to do? But if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, I hope you'll recommit to that relationship this morning. If you don't, as we pray a closing prayer, I, I hope you'll commit your life to Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your love. And if there's anyone here this morning who has not truly started a relationship with you, I pray that right now in their hearts that they would fully surrender, that they'd commit everything to you, and that their lives would be a result of real love and real worship for God. Guide us now this morning from this place, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing together.